Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm speaking with Olga Dror, professor of history at Texas A&M University. Educated in the Soviet Union, Israel, and the United States, Professor Dror has authored, translated, and co-edited five books and numerous articles. The focus of her research ranges from Vietnamese and Chinese theistic religions and European missionaries in Asia in early modern times to the study of the civilian experience during the Tet Offensive in Hue to North and South Vietnamese youth during the Second Indochina War to political religions. Her most recent monograph, Making Two Vietnams, War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975, the main focus of our conversation today was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press and just came out in paperback. I'm Sabina Frühstück. I teach on modern and contemporary Japanese culture and its relations to other parts of the world at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Good morning, Olga. Good morning, Sabin. It's my pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Olga, you came from a family who has endured the blockade of Leningrad by the Germans in World War II. How did that family history shape your interest in civil society during wartime? And how did you get interested in the Vietnam War in particular? Thank you so much for this question because it's so precious and so important to my family uh, history. Both of my parents were born shortly before World War II and uh, they stayed in uh, Leningrad that was under siege uh, during the first three years of the, blockade, of, the, of the war. So they grew up there as uh, many other children and uh, my grandparents lived through the blockade, through the siege of Leningrad. I was always interested by, uh, in the experience that they had to go through. I wanted to understand how the life of the people who did not go to the front but had to live through the death, through the destruction of the war in Leningrad, uh, how it influenced them, how did my parents uh, grow up uh, in that city. And when I started to study Asia and I started to study Vietnam, I wanted to know more about the time of war in Vietnam and how the civilians were uh, impacted uh, by the war there and especially how youth and children uh, were in, impacted by this. My son, when I was working on this book, my son was um, very relatively young too. Uh, and uh, it, I think, only doubled my interest in the subject because I wanted uh, to see through his eyes how it would be growing uh, up at the time of the war. I see, that's fascinating. Um, as you write in the book's introduction, some tens of thousands of books have been published on the Vietnam War, but few on civil society in the North and South. And as multilingual scholar, you have probably read more of them than most. It must have been daunting to write another book on that war while triangulating the DRV, the RVN, and the US. What do you see as the main contributions of your book? I 
thing. Most of the books that have been written about the Vietnam War, what is we call in the United States the Vietnam War, they were written from the American perspective. And Americans were not particularly interested in uh, Vietnamese civil society during the war or after. So most of the books that have been written they concern, they focus on the military aspects of the war, some uh, on the political uh, aspects, but very, very few talk about uh, culture or society during the war. Even fewer uh, talk about youth or children, and I thought that it is very important uh, to talk about uh, children and youth because uh, children and youth, these are people uh, who uh, will be the future of uh, a society, in this case of Vietnamese society. So I was interested uh, not only uh, in their experience, but also what each state, the North uh, Vietnam and uh, South Vietnam, what uh, did they want to transmit to their young ones? And perhaps I have to talk a little bit here about uh, the history of uh, the Vietnam War um, so that um, those of you who uh, haven't studied uh, much uh, about it would know in uh, 1954 after French colonization, uh, Vietnam uh, was divided into parts and uh, in uh, the northern part uh, became the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and it was uh, under the control of the communists, of the communists uh, and the head of the government was Ho Chi Minh, while uh, South Vietnam uh, remained uh, under French control for a very short period of time, but later uh, became what was called Nationalist Vietnam. And uh, we know it as South Vietnam. Uh, the official name was uh, the Republic of Vietnam. So the war that uh, started later was the war uh, between um, North Vietnam, the Communist Vietnam, and South Vietnam, the nationalist Vietnam, and the United States fought on the side of uh, South Vietnam, of, national, of uh, nationalist Vietnam. And uh, very shortly after the United States uh, got engaged in the conflict, it became uh, considered and portrayed as the war of the United States against communism. But uh, just because the United States is so huge and uh, has this tendency to take over everything, including the attention, including the perception, right? So uh, the, uh, southern, the South Vietnamese side was kind of taken over by the American side and it we can see it in the military uh, strategies, in tactics, but also in culture, in uh, the treatment of um, the people. So it all became very Americanized. And as a result, uh, most of the books that have been written on the topics, they also focus on uh, either on the American side or on the conflict between the United States and uh, communist Vietnam. Very little has been written about uh, South Vietnam. And uh, that is why I wanted to write uh, something that would uh, include both uh, South Vietnam, nationalist Vietnam, North Vietnam, uh, communist Vietnam, and the United States. And uh, this I see as uh, my, my main contribution because uh, actually I think it's uh, uh, one of the first, if not the first, comparative uh, books. 
That's great, because that's really also one of the aspects that I found so fascinating and surprising to me. And I realized how um, colored my perspective on this war was precisely on the American um, uh, view of the war. Uh, one of one of your of the striking aspect aspects of your book is then the comparative uh, perspective of northern and southern youth in particular. Um, what do you consider the main drivers of the considerable differences you describe? It's it's a great question. Thank you so much, Sabine. I think that this is exactly what demonstrates the differences uh, between uh, North Vietnam, Communist Vietnam, and South uh, Nationalist Vietnam. Uh, we can call uh, Nationalist Vietnam as, uh, to call it an anti-communist. And it's very important for us to understand the differences. Because as any uh, authoritarian society, North Vietnam uh, had a despotic uh, authoritarian apparatus. And they had the idea that they want uh, to expel the French to become an independent state, but it was not sufficient. It was that they wanted both parts of Vietnam, the North and the South, be united under their rule, under the communist rule. So they instilled on the part that they controlled, the communist rule, very strict rule with brainwashing, with, con with the control of thought, uh, with complete and tight control of education. South Vietnam, could not do it because their raison d'être, uh, their uh, uh, reason for existence was not to be communist. So they could not uh, introduce the same methods. And shall I say that they were democratic? No, they were not democratic. But uh, even though the United States considers democracy as the best, if not uh, the only uh, state order uh, that would uh, fit practically any country, we can leave how good democracy is from this context, but it cannot be introduced uh, overnight. Vietnam had never been a democratic country. So sure, South Vietnam was not democratic but it was not autocratic either. And when you start developing democracy, when you start moving from an autocratic state, it is inevitable that there, is differences, there are differences of opinion, right? And this is how uh, a position developed in South Vietnam vis-a-vis -vis its own government. So on the one side of the conflict, there is a monolith that can dictate ideology, that can dictate how to raise youth, that can dictate its agenda. And on the other side, there is a society that has to allow some uh, degree of dissent. And this degree of dissent undermines the very existence of this society, because people in the West and uh, uh, in, the, um, in the rest of the world, they see it and they say, oh, you see, there are people there who are against the government, so it's a bad government. But in the North, no one can see that there is someone against anyone against the government because it cannot be seen, because the government polices the state, right? So... Uh, I talked with a lot of uh, young people who were young back then, and I asked them what they really uh, thought at that time when they were, for example, demonstrating against the government. Uh, and they were telling me that they were so excited about the very opportunity that they could express their opinions that they didn't think uh, about the consequences. For them, it was very important 
to express themselves. And it is very understandable because this is what the war was about. And if we uh, talk about the authoritarian uh, states, there is a lot to say for authoritarianism during the time of uh, war. It's not for nothing that uh, Germany lost to the state that was as authoritarian as Germany. Because in all the democratic states, there were, uh, we would collaborate, we would try to save people, or we won't. And in the Soviet Union, it wasn't even a question, the question. Those who tried, uh, if they were not uh, on uh, the territories occupied by Germans, uh, they know how it ended because uh, Stalin did not take lightly uh, these uh, ideas. So it is much easier to deal with an authoritarian state uh, and for the authoritarian state during the time of war. So um, from the point of view of youth, it was uh, much easier, in a sense, to raise youth in the north or in the, on the communist territories, because uh, communists controlled not only North Vietnam, but also some parts of South Vietnam. And um, they were mobilizing their youth, they were preparing their youth to um, prolong conflict, and that they uh, had to sacrifice everything for the war and for the unification of the country under the socialist or communist system. And it is very important to remember it, that it was not just unification of the country, but it's unification on our terms. It's uh, uh, either our way or highway. It was much easier to grow up actually in this situation because I grew up in the Soviet Union it was very easy. I knew that I had to become a pioneer and a member, the member of a Komsomol. So the path is already carved for you. You just uh, follow and try not to deviate. Uh, while in the South, children were growing up with the idea that they have to find their own path. Because unlike in the North, where the entire propaganda machine was geared towards the war and instilling hatred in the enemies, be it South Vietnamese or Americans. In the South, adults didn't want really to discuss the war with their children. Uh, neither uh, they didn't discuss either in the textbooks or uh, in conversations, a lot of Vietnamese uh, who lived in South Vietnam and were young at that time told me that their parents never talked really uh, with them about uh, the war, or they didn't know uh, who Ho Chi Minh was. And Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the country against which their own country fought. And it was... Uh, uh, it, it was to be explained by the fact that uh, South Vietnamese society had to deal with diversity and uh, an impossibility to impose this authoritarian uh, framework on the society because in the same schools uh, could study children of those who were pro-communist, communist, anti-communist, people who would uh, consider themselves as following the third way, or some apolitical people. And there were a lot of apolitical people who didn't want anything but to live in peace, which from my point of view is completely understandable. Who, no one really, except for a very uh, small part of the society, no one really knew what the difference uh, between capitalism and uh, socialism and communism and anti-communism. People wanted to live in peace. So uh, to avoid uh, complications and problems for children uh, at school, uh, schools were not to discuss these problems. 
Moreover, a lot of families were divided. A part of the family would be in the north, part uh, in the south. Sometimes uh, brothers would be fighting on uh, the different sides of the war. So for South Vietnamese, it was also a very difficult situation because they did not want to foster a hatred the way the North was willing to foster it. And uh, in the North, for example, uh, newspapers and uh, uh, textbooks, uh, they would use a lot of uh, hate-instilling examples. There were even math uh, problems. Uh, how many Americans you have to kill for that? And here find on a picture how many South Vietnamese puppets, this is the way they called uh, those who were against them uh, in South Vietnam, uh, South Vietnamese puppets uh, or lackeys, uh, how many uh, of them you can find uh, on the picture uh, where you see a tank that squished them. This was how children were raised. But at the same time, those children, they uh, had um, significantly fewer questions about why to go to war. And uh, they uh, were very willing and actually interested uh, to go to war because, uh, you know, when uh, you are at school, and sometimes your school is boring and you read all the time about those examples, how heroic youth is fighting somewhere. You're thinking, what I'm doing here? Why wouldn't it be better for me to go and fight? And these examples of youth fighting uh, very early in their life uh, always fascinated me. And uh, I uh, talked with a person who actually fought against the French. He started to fight uh, when he was uh, 12 years old against the French during the colonial uh, time. And I asked him, uh, what did you know about colonialism that you hated it so much that you decided to go to fight? He said, I didn't know anything. But the choice for me was to work on the rice fields or to go with the men and have a rifle and be a man. And uh, this romanticization of the war uh, that uh, North Vietnam created also uh, created the uh, atmosphere where a lot of young Vietnamese were willing to in the South, at the same time, it was very different because they could discuss and they could, uh, uh, they could form their own opinion. And then people start asking, and why should I go to fight? And uh, this is a problem and we can uh, demonstrate. And a lot of people uh, who uh, later found themselves fleeing from the communists to the United States or being put into uh, the re-education camps, I asked them, when you were demonstrating against the war, which I completely understand because uh, such a long war, anyone uh, would get uh, tired, what, and you were demonstrating against the Americans too. So what were you thinking would happen when the Americans leave and the war stops. Because you, you have to, from my point of view, you had to think, you know, because if there are no Americans and the war ends, then uh, the communists come. And they said they just didn't think about it because they wanted the war to stop. I understand that. And it ended when it ended and the communists came and put them uh, into a education camp or uh, a lot of them had to flee. It was already a different story, but the very process when you have to uh, live through the war, for Americans, it was very difficult, but GIs would go there for a tour and then they go back to their country that was not ravaged by the war. I'm not 
think that they were not traumatized by the experience in Vietnam. But Vietnamese had to live year after year after year after year, and their countries was ravaged. There was nowhere to go back. They had to stay there. Right. That's um, given me a clue for uh, my next question. One of the central themes in your book is is precisely how youth and children deal with that uh, long-term war. Um, and so we know, of course, that about a third of the population uh, belong to children and youth. And yet most historians of East Asia in general and Vietnam as well, of course, have assumed that children are essentially historically irrelevant. And you've already mentioned that other war, namely World War II in Europe, uh, where a number of scholars have studied the impact of the war on children and youth. And one might think of Nicholas Stargard's Witnesses of War or Svetlana Alexievich's Last Witnesses. But not more than a handful of East Asia scholars have written in English about children at war. And you are one of them, of course. Um, how can you elaborate a little bit on what prompted you to write this particular history through children, through youth? And you've already uh, started to address that question, but if you could uh, elaborate a little bit, what is it about children or youth in particular that makes that history speak to you? I think there are two main points here. Uh, one is exactly the lack of uh, books written about children or articles about children during the war. And uh, perhaps it can be explained uh, in Asia uh, by the fact that children uh, were not usually the center of literature, uh, of studies, and they were not considered the central, uh, the core of the fighting forces. Along with this came the problem that they were disregarded as the core for which allegedly those any war is fought because they are the next generation. So this is even more staggering that we don't look at the people for whom we allegedly fight. And this is a very important point. Uh, and the second uh, idea why I wanted to write about them is because I think the treatment of youth uh, is the best mirror or reflection of what is going in uh, each society. Uh, how, uh, how to deal with this? Uh, for example, uh, and it concerns anything. For example, we talk about, I talk about uh, youth movement in uh, North and in uh, South Vietnam. And um, in the North, there are kind of, uh, you know, analogous of pioneers and Komsomol in the Soviet Union. This is where they uh, borrowed it. In the South, there are so many different movements. There are hippies and uh, Vietnamese, many uh, Vietnamese, adult Vietnamese, they are uh, surprised and appalled, many of them, what to do for them. Uh, the communist menace becomes much less significant than uh, the menace of being westernized, that they would lose their Vietnamese. And other uh, Vietnamese adults say, you know, it's not that bad uh, because this is how they express, this is what we. Uh, express themselves. This is uh, how we want them to grow up. If we talk about Japan, for example, it wasn't uh, hippies were not a big deal in Japan because the government decided uh, that as soon as we can let them be, as soon as they uh, get to the age when they need to go to the workforce, it will all change. But uh, in many ways, uh, the Japanese society was much more established uh, than uh, the newly created uh, society in, in South Vietnam that was not really sure 
how to construct itself, not only by itself, but vis-a-vis its uh, uh, northern uh, enemy, its uh, communist uh, communist enemy, adversary, right? So uh, this was uh, very important uh, for me, and I couldn't understand, and I still can't understand why uh, more works don't appear uh, about the topic uh, of uh, children uh, and youth. I have to say that my book does not cover everything. It's just the first book. And as the first book uh, in uh, this particular field, it just opens new uh, roads for other people to cover and to research. So I hope to see more books uh, and articles about it by other people. Absolutely. It's certainly a milestone. And one of the things you have so beautifully managed is a question that is often pondered uh, contentiously in the history of childhood, namely whether to privilege the study of childhood as a symbolic or metaphorical construct, or instead prioritize the voices of children themselves, no matter how compromised they might be by adult directives or the means and modes of their expression. Um, Can you uh, describe a little bit for our listeners how you have handled this conundrum? In other words, the question of children as autonomous actors or victims, as objects of manipulation or agents of political change, or as something else entirely? It's a great question. Thank you so much. I think uh, I did not consider it really a conundrum and I did not consider them either as autonomous actors or victims or even objects of manipulation because for me they were everything combined. How adults or the state or societies tried to influence them and how they took it in. And in each case, it could be different, right? So it depended a lot on the circumstances of each person, especially in the South. In the North, it was much more peer pressure and uh, government pressure and state pressure and the party pressure. So it was very, very uh, important. But this is how we are all formed. We don't grow up in a vacuum, be it in the United States or in Germany or in Japan or in France, we are influenced by all those factors. I did have uh, some um, problem or thought, maybe I gave more thought about uh, my interviews of the people who were uh, growing up at that time, because there is uh, you know, a huge uh, chunk of time between now and then. It's uh, almost uh, uh, 40 years uh, was when I was uh, started writing the book. Uh, um, so it's a very significant amount of time, which is already changing the perspective. But during this time, uh, people also read works, memoirs, watch movies, And I know from my own experience that it's very difficult really to distinguish what is my memory and what came after. Because I, in all honesty, I think that I remember myself lying as a two-month-old in a cradle and thinking what my parents are doing. And I, I think that it's because I saw my pictures so it's it's very very difficult uh, to to decide now. So when I was posing the questions, I was uh, asking them to try to remember what they knew back then. Not that I doubted that now uh, children who adults who grew up from children in the south would know who Ho Chi Minh was. But what did you know back then? Do you remember your feelings? In the North, I was asking uh, people who were children back then, uh, what were your feelings about the war? 
because uh, a lot of uh, works uh, attribute to Ho Chi Minh the love from children that they didn't have for anyone, even for their families. So I was curious, did you really love Ho Chi Minh more than your parents? And, uh, you know, the, the answers that they give me, I, I'm sure that they're honest answers, but how compromised they are, I don't know. Right, right. So you now you make it uh, sound really obvious and easy, but when we think about different actors in history, right, when you consider you have uh, looked at youth in particular in Vietnam, um, what in your mind makes studying children and youth uh, different or possibly particularly challenging and intriguing for a historian? You've already given us some clues, but if you could elaborate. I think that this is a very uh, important issue to study, but it's a much more difficult issue to study. Because, for example, uh, I went for the first time to uh, the Vietnamese archives and I asked them uh, about materials, children during the war. They said, who keeps this? And uh, they really have very few materials, very little in the archives because it was not considered important. Uh, And this is, uh, or for example, they don't want to disclose, they don't want to disclose uh, anything about children being uh, recruited or sent to the front during the war because officially it was not the case. But uh, we know that young children went to the war, even from the north, that uh, young uh, people uh, younger than age 18 and 17, even they went to fight. In the south, the situation uh, was completely different because especially the, the territories that were under the communist control. As I have told you, there were some territories under the communist control. And everything that is presented now as the South, it was a grassroots movement, and the South uh, communists, they were fighting uh, out of their own volition and without any direction from the North. Uh, now we know that actually it was the North was that was directing everything, uh, and not only military in- infiltration came from the North and all the weapons uh, came from the North, but also the the ideological construct uh, for those territories uh, controlled by the communists in the South. So, for example, uh, I found uh, documents that discuss the problem for those uh, communist-controlled territories in the South, because uh, on the one hand, the documents say, we should expand our school system beyond the sixth grade. Because otherwise, uh, parents might send children to the enemy's territory to study further because the enemy South Vietnamese, they have those schools. But if we expand it here, then perhaps instead of fighting, going to fight, and this is the age of 13, 14, they, they will go to school. And they proudly publish accounts of the young uh, children, the age of uh, 12, 13. At the age of 13, I killed 225 Americans. And you don't even know when you look at this, how can they really publicize it, whether it was true or not to make young people so determined to go there and not uh, to be geared towards a more peaceful society. And this was the problem that I could not deal with a lot of uh, documents. Uh, I had mostly uh, deal, uh, I have found quite a lot, but uh, I had to deal a lot with publications. It gave me a completely new perspective because I could reflect on what the government, what the adults 
wanted to put, to instill into their children. And it also showed me that how different those societies were. And I think that given uh, its uh, budding uh, demo democratic character, not de democracy, but budding uh, democratic character, South Vietnam was gearing uh, its youth towards a peaceful, more peaceful construct, while the North was gearing towards the war. And I think the North was much more successful in this situation. The problem was that when the peace came, the Northern society, it was not able to produce people who knew how to build. They were geared towards the war, even after all the sufferings. But for so many years, the war was that uh, something that they knew and that the government was mobilizing them for. And uh, that, that is why after the war, um, the problems there were economic problems inflicted by the war. There is no doubt about it, but it was also because uh, the government and the people, they could not shift the gears from the war, uh, from the war ideology, from a war economy to a peaceful construction. Right. And from the, the complications of the history of children and youth, uh, in addition to those uh, difficulties in making two Vietnams, you've also made an enormous contribution to the history of emotions. And um, often, of course, the history of children and childhood has been interrelated with uh, the history of emotions. And we have um, works by Berlin, Cruel Optimism, or Elusis, Cold Intimacies, both, I think, have hit a nerve for contemporary historians of the 20th century. In making two Vietnams, you use your own term. You uh, write about emotional socialization. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that and what these concept-specific qualities were for the youth of both Vietnams? Thank you. Uh, for me, it was very important to look at the issue of emotions, especially in the North, we can uh, see clearly the division, uh, the development of two main emotions, love and hatred. So love uh, is, for most, it starts with love for Ho Chi Minh. It's... Uh, the leader of uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. It's the first president of uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, considered the uh, founder of the Communist Party, the founder of the state, and also the uncle, uncle of Vietnamese people and of Vietnamese children. So he allegedly uh, doesn't have and didn't have any family. Uh, he claimed that Vietnamese people were his family, even though he was married and uh, had the children, was married more than uh, once, uh, had children. But this was very important to not to bring into the discourse uh, of uh, Vietnamese society because he was the uncle and he had a beard, a goatee, and he loved children. And this is this was the easiest actually and the, the most effective way to connect young people, children to uh, the state and the party because it wasn't only adults who didn't know the concept uh, of uh, capitalism and socialism and anti-communism, but uh, children, they were not interested and it could not be explained to them. So how to tie them to the uh, state and to the party and to their agenda? It was through Uncle Ho. Uh, the, this is the name that uh, Ho Chi Minh was known in Vietnam. And starting from uh, 
preschool, from kindergarten, they were taught in poems, in songs, in stories, some of which were written by Ho Chi Minh himself, how to love uh, Uncle Ho. And then through this allegiance to Uncle Ho, they were brought into the fold of the Communist Party and of the state and uh, raised loyal to the agenda of this party and that state. Hatred is always another very strong uh, factor in mobilizing any society, right? Because there is us and there is the others. And uh, the others, they are Americans and South Vietnamese who are labeled uh, traitors, puppets, legacies of the Americans. And uh, that, that's why there were so many stories about fostering hatred and math problems and uh, poetry. In the South, the main focus was not hatred, but they could not mobilize to the same extent because their focus was on the family, and which is great. This is the Confucian tradition. Uh, that puts family into the uh, heart, uh, into the core of uh, the ideology that everything uh, is centered around the family and you have to uh, respect your family and you have to uh, obey uh, your parents, you have to cherish your families. Uh, so it does not... Uh, really tie the youth to the cause for which the country is fighting at the moment. Unlike in the North, in the North, they just were claiming that we Vietnamese were all one family. So in a sense, they extrapolated this tradition, but then this family actually was going far beyond even Vietnam because in the communist uh, they were very open uh, about the fact that, cla the cl that class is the center of their ideology, not, uh, uh, not uh, nationality. This is how the communist world works. It's uh, uh, the proletarians of all world, uh, of the entire world unite, proletarians of the entire world unite, which uh, shows us that uh, the, cl the class, the, uh, your position in the society, this is uh, what defines you. Uh, so uh, it was very important, I think, that in general with children, it's very, their emotions are very important. I think having Ho Chi Minh uh, was a great help for children to uh, grow up. Uh, I lived and was a pioneer uh, in uh, the ranks of uh, pioneer Lenin's, Lenin's pioneer organization, but we were quite removed already because Lenin died in 1924 and I was a pioneer in the 1970s. It's 50 years and uh, we lived uh, th through and after uh, the thaw that Khrushchev uh, uh, announced uh, after overthrowing uh, the cult of personality of Stalin. So there was quite a lot of cynicism there already. But still, for us, there was some uh, organization, some unity. We, I, I grew up in an anti-religious state, so there was no religion. That was kind of our religion, and it was the same in Vietnam. But Unlike my case, Ho Chi Minh was for some time quite alive and present in the life of those children. So for them, he was uh, much more uh, significant and much more concrete than Lenin for me. Now, young people in Vietnam, they are removed more or less from that time. And I see quite a lot of uh, the same treatment of Ho Chi Minh that I saw in the Soviet Union in my own time there. Right, right. So in um, Making Two Vietnams, 
you have already incredibly complicated the history of the Vietnam War. You have made rich contributions to the history of children and youth. And you have engaged uh, the history of emotions. Now, you are, at the moment, you're a fellow at the Institut d'Etudes Avancées de Nantes with a project on Ho Chi Minh's cult in Vietnamese statehood. So I have to ask you at the end of our conversation, have you left children and youth behind? What's this new book about? This new book, I haven't left uh, youth and children behind completely in the dust. No, I will bring them up uh, into the project in a way to demonstrate uh, the creation of uh, Ho Chi Minh cult of personality in uh, uh, Vietnam. I think there are a lot of biographies written about Ho Chi Minh, but uh, Ho Chi Minh is uh, one of the most enigmatic uh, leaders, uh, incredible charisma. We know very little about him, actually. He never wanted to talk about himself. At the same time, he was writing uh, his own autobiographies under different names, praising himself to the sky and uh, beyond. It's a very uh, interesting and complex uh, personality. Uh, Vietnamese definitely don't want to uh, disclose more documents than they can keep secret about Ho Chi Minh. Uh, So I was interested how uh, he how his cult was created and uh, what was his own role. Because I think actually he is the most active promoter of his own cult comparatively to any other leader. There is no doubt that Stalin or Mao had uh, a lot of underlings who were uh, writing and praising them and creating their cult of personality, but uh, the way and the quantity of Ho Chi Minh's own contribution to his own cult is incredible. And it's very interesting and important for me to understand whether he was just micromanaging, not not, uh, not trusting uh, their uh, comrades to create the cult that he wanted, Uh, or he was just uh, uh, only uh, wanted to express himself this way. So I talk about, I start talking about his cult from 1945, and I go now, uh, up until now, until until 2020. Uh, So after, long after he is gone, and how his cult is doing today in different parts of the country and among different generations. And this is how I will keep youth and children engaged in the project from start to end. That's wonderful, sounds fascinating. But I want to use this moment to congratulate you again on your previous book, Making Two Vietnams, War and Youth Identities, 1965 to 1975. And it's fabulous that it just came out in paperback. And so I'm sure there will be lots of courses that will adopt your book and we'll have more conversations as we move forward. Thank you so much, Olga. Thank you, Sabine. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.